Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Well, a bit of a mixed bag. Some things I'm excited about, some things I'm upset about. We will talk about both. <laughs> you can guess what one of those things probably is. But yeah. the thing I'm excited about, or one of the things I'm excited about, is that we are starting our season preview series today. I'm excited that we have a season to preview at yes. all. And also that we are doing some previews. So we're starting today, as anyone who looked at the title of this episode knows, with the AL Central. Why the AL Central? We don't know. We just kind of decided to start with the AL Central. No one starts with the AL Central when they're previewing the season, right? So we're zigging where they zag, I guess. Everyone always starts with the AL East. There's AL East bias. And then sometimes people will overcorrect and say, well, no, we'll just start with the NL West. But it's the flyover states. It's the Midwest that loses no matter which coast you start with. So we are starting with the AL West. Take that, everyone. And we're going to do... You were so conditioned that you said AL <laughs> AL West instead of oh, no. AL Central. <laughs> uh, uh. Sorry, everyone. Okay. <laughs> I slighted the Midwest without even meaning to. But no, the AL Central. Yes. And we're not necessarily going to go in any kind of geographic or league order, but no. we promise that we will preview all six divisions before opening day. And RJ Anderson of CBS Sports will be joining us for today's preview. We're just going to get generalists on, friends of the show, yeah. who know a lot about baseball in general, to help us preview these divisions. So this is a little bit different for anyone who's been with us before and knows that our usual 15 podcast preview series, which takes up several weeks, yeah. was impossible this year because of the lockout. and. Maybe that's an overdose for some people when it comes to doing a full segment of 30 or 40 minutes on every team. Some people appreciate that. Some people don't need to know that much about every team. But we like getting to talk to people who cover those teams and get that insight and really get into the nitty gritty of each roster and some of the reporting minutiae. But this will be more of a general overview that will hopefully bring you up to speed on how the offseason transpired, whether all of the moves were made in the last two weeks or the two weeks that preceded the lockout and some of the interesting storylines and strengths and weaknesses and rookies to look forward to and breakout picks and so forth. So I think it'll be fun and hopefully a compromise that people will be pleased with. Yeah, I think that, you know, next year, hopefully we can return to regularly scheduled programming, or maybe people will like this so much that it'll be our approach going forward. Who could say? But we appreciate everyone's flexibility, and we want to thank in advance all of the folks who come on to help us talk about the various divisions, because, yes. you know, we get to, it's nice to get to feel excited uh, about baseball. That's a good thing. So we appreciate everyone helping us out. And, you know, I'm sure that there are prospects and, and what have you who we would forget were it not for the help of our friends. So, mm-hmm. And anyone who is thinking, no, I like the 30-team previews. I love it. It can be a bit of a slog, but it's very informative. And now they're just going to do this division-by-division division thing, and it's just going to be because of this weird one-year exception, <laughs> but then they'll stick with it forever. 
I am familiar <laughs> with that feeling. <laughs> wow, Ben, I have to say that is Great a segue, huh? that was an yeah. eighty segue. Like that was that was <laughs> you're a, a professional. But... <laughs> you're a professional podcaster. I'm Thank impressed. You. Hopefully, people followed my little leap there because the predictable calamity has come to pass. Yeah. And the zombie runner is back, at least for 2022. Now, for anyone who is just tuning in because they think that this is a podcast about the AL Central or they're big R.J. Anderson fans and don't normally listen to us, they may not know. Hi, I'm Ben Lindbergh. I absolutely loathe the automatic runner <laughs> that starts in extra innings now. We call it the zombie runner around these parts. Yes. It is not a ghost runner, nope. as we have established many times. A yep. ghost runner is a separate term in baseball that already existed and describes a runner who is not physically present on the bases. The zombie runner is on the bases and is a runner who has come back from the dead after making an out in the previous inning. And also, we don't like it and we can't get rid of it. So the term just fits better every year. And I almost resent that they are stringing me along like this yeah. with the year-to-year thing. They're saying again, oh, it's just for 2022. Don't worry. It's just temporary. I see through this. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> a football for me to kick, Lucy? <laughs> You're not fooling me. And look, I've done this rant enough times. This will, I hope, be my last zombie runner rant for a while, and I will try to table it and not come to peace with it or come to terms with it, but at least be quiet about it for a little while and restrict myself to an occasional snide comment for from time to time without the full rant. But really, the fact that they're holding out any prospect to me of this going away is cruel because I don't think it is ever going to go away because, as we've established, players are fine with it, seem to prefer it on the whole. Owners seem to prefer it, too. They're maybe not making as much money with extra innings, right? Fans are leaving anyway, and it's last call, and so everyone go home so we can clean the stadium and kick you all out. And people who cover baseball, at least in some cases, beat writers, media members, they maybe have mixed feelings, at least, about it because, hey, it affects their job. But we are the voice of the people here. We are the voice of the fans. And I know it's not a universal opinion. And there are some misguided sorts who uh, actually do like the zombie runner. Sorry, I won't impugn your opinions. You are entitled to them. And if you like the zombie runner, I'm happy for you because I cannot find that happiness in my own life. And so I almost wish they would just put me out of my misery and just say, yeah, you're stuck with it so that I could kind of emotionally move on. Because as it is, there's some small part of me that's thinking, maybe, maybe we will get rid of this thing at some point. I don't really think that's going to be the case. But for now, they are justifying it really with health and safety protocols, which made some sense during the pandemic, I think, maybe, just because, you know, minimize exposure and everyone's catching COVID and you're having to call people up constantly and rosters are thin and you had short spring training and all of the above. Okay, under those circumstances, maybe it made sense to bring in this thing that normally you would only use in the minors or in international competition or amateur ball. But now I just don't know that this still is a legitimate explanation or excuse for this thing now like i get that spring training has been a bit compressed and there are injury concerns and i certainly don't want to see anyone get hurt and we've seen pitchers and position players get hurt a lot in the last couple of years yeah but i just don't know that i buy that there's any realistic health and safety reason to have this we already have 
28 person rosters, right? Yeah. Until May 22nd with no limits in the number of pitchers that you can have on your roster until May 2nd when it goes down to 26 player rosters and 13 pitcher maximum. So if we're changing the roster size at that point, can we not also get rid of the zombie runner at that point? Do we still need it? And also... I feel like we have worked ourselves into this corner where pitchers are used so sparingly that you can just justify almost any change with, oh, pitchers will break because they all just go one inning and it's max effort all the time. And we have talked about that change and how maybe in some senses it's spectator unfriendly, but you've kind of gotten yourself into this situation, MLB teams. <laughs> you know, you've gotten yourself into the situation where you don't have enough pitchers to get through a nine inning game because everyone is pitching one inning a game and then you're giving them a day off in between. I mean, if that were really seriously protecting pitchers and if we were seeing injury rates go down then fine there'd be a trade-off there but that doesn't seem to be happening and i guess you could say it would be even worse if everyone were throwing max effort and also throwing more innings but what if they threw more innings and didn't throw max effort constantly i know there's like a a case of misaligned incentives here because obviously like pitchers just want to do the best they can at all times but when they are not asked to conserve any strength then they won't. And then you get yourself into a situation where you run out of pitchers out of nine innings and you say, hey, bail me out Major League Baseball by ending the game early. Yeah, I think that it seems as if if the real motivation is to preserve pitcher health, which is an admirable motivation and one, to your point, that we've expressed like a necessity for this year. Like we are <laughs> very nervous about all the guys who are going to break. We're bummed out by all the guys who have already broken, right? And have found themselves sort of caught betwixt and between with the lockout and being able to, you know, get enough innings on their arm before opening day. And so that is an argument for expanded rosters. It is not an argument for this you know, monstrosity, literally a zombie, a monster (laughs) Mm -hmm. of some sort, because the number of games that actually benefit from any kind of reduction in time is so small to begin with. And we don't, you know, we know so much about like how COVID is transmitted. And I'm not really convinced by the argument that keeping them out there for another inning or two is going to meaningfully change your risk of contracting COVID. And so it just seems as if this is another instance of the league like saying they're doing one thing for one reason, but really doing it for another. And I wish they'd just be honest about it because then we could yell at them unreservedly. But right (laughs) Right. now there's someone out there thinking that this is really going to improve pitcher health. And I just am not convinced that that really is a thing. And I, I fundamentally, I, I get, I get that there is precedent for, deviation from this in other sports. It is not as if, you know, every sport deals with its overtime scenario the same way it deals with its regulation play and what have you. But like fundamentally, I think that, and and maybe it was Joe Sheehan who was tweeting about this the other day, like you don't want, you want a fault on the defense to be the reason that a team wins or loses. You don't Mm -hmm. want it to be that there's just a guy out there to begin with. Like that's not in keeping with the spirit of it. Even in hockey, when you go to like shootout, penalties (laughs) don't know the Kraken haven't been good it hasn't forced my hand to learn stuff I don't know what to tell you the reason that a team wins is because the goalie fails to stop the puck now they get to do it in a slightly different circumstance obviously than they would than they do during regulation but like it's not like they get to sit right in front of the net and then just toss it in there they still have to shoot the I don't know if this is you know what I'm here to tell you I don't know if this is helping or hurting my argument because I just don't know enough about the thing but yeah fundamentally like I 
I don't think that this is the direction that we want baseball to go in terms of our understanding of what, you know, sort of tips the scales. You want it to be a a failure rather than a thumb on the scale, Mm -hmm. you know, a failure instead of a thumb. I think that's the direction we want. So I don't like it. I don't like that we keep getting fooled about it. And I feel as if my intelligence has been insulted. And, you know, historically, you have felt more exercised about this than I Mm -hmm. have. And I came around to being kind of exercised about it. But it is especially galling in a week that has seen not one, but two instances of zombie nonsense. Have you (laughs) contemplated the second? (laughs) Do you know what I'm about to say, Ben? No, tell me. Okay, so... Our listeners will remember, and I am sorry for the degree to which many of you remember this, my imitation of the MLB flashback uh, intro <laughs> oh, music, yes. the aggressive guitar riff, the <laughs> and then here I am sitting on my couch and watching spring training baseball on Sunday, and there's like this other thing happening, and it's not an aggressive guitar riff, and I'm sure I'm still going to get sick of the specific highlights, but it's like, our national nightmare is over, and then- yeah. It was back, Ben. It's been in and out, here and there, Uh. betwixt in between. (laughs) And so I just need us to like turn away from the zombie lifestyle because it is very stressful. Nothing feels safe. Mm -hmm. I don't know if my face is going to get eaten off or I'm going to have to listen to weird like dad rock intros. So anyway... Yeah, Make just the madness when we thought stop. it was safe to go back in the water. It's yeah. very frustrating. And it's <sighs> like, I think this may have been Joe who said this the other day, but it's like when you use the specter of like security or public yeah. safety, I mean, things that we're in favor of, but suddenly you're able to impose all of these invasive and onerous measures. I mean, yeah. you know, if you say, well, are you patriotic? Well, yeah. Do you hate this country? No. Well, then why do you want to get rid of the national anthem before every single event? And why do we not have flyovers before every single sporting event? What, do you not like America? And so there's this kind of creep that happens where once you stick one of these things in, then you're stuck with it and it becomes impossible to jettison it again. And meanwhile, it comes with all of these other byproducts that are not beneficial. So look, if you're one of the people who enjoys the zombie runner and thinks it adds interest or excitement or tension or strategy i'm happy for you i am unable to come to that conclusion myself i know it does work as intended to a degree it does shorten games and makes it harder for you to have long extra inning games although Although. the game is not as great as one might think because it also extends the innings that you do play yeah reduces the pace of play it makes those games longer because you have a runner on base to begin with and everything is suddenly a slog and slows down because that runner is in scoring position and could potentially end the game and so I don't find the baseball itself to be all that fun to watch so again I would prefer to just play the games to completion using the same rules all the way through failing that I'd be fine with ties failing that even I think there are more entertaining measures that would be no more drastic than this necessarily that could also end the game earlier whether it's pulling fielders off the field or whatever there are all kinds of creative measures that I like more than overturning this very fundamental aspect of the game which is that you've got to get on base somehow you can't just be born there and so it annoys me to no end and It almost is a distraction from how little I like the rule, the terminology that is applied to it. But this ghost runner nonsense must stop. 
And there are times where, on the whole, I, I would say that I'm, I'm happy with the platform that I have in order to air my opinions and make them known to people. And I'm not sitting here thinking, I wish this were the most popular podcast in the world. It is a adequately popular podcast and people like it and we <laughs> like doing it and listeners support us and it's wonderful. Yes. This is one time where I wish that I could just get into everyone's ears yes. somehow and just interrupt your regular programming and yes. say it is not a ghost runner. No. We have a ghost runner. This is a zombie runner. And we've seen so many backs and forths this week with people saying Ghost Runner and then everyone saying, no, it's not a Ghost Runner. And I'm glad that there is that response, at least, that people are sticking up for whatever their chosen term is, whether it is the official Automatic Runner or Zombie Runner or Manfred Man or whatever it is. To persist in calling it the Ghost Runner at this point is journalistic malpractice. You should be stripped of your BBWAA card. Stop perpetuating fake news. You are endangering the reputation of the fourth estate. So we just need to do something different here. We need to call it a zombie runner as long as we actually are stuck with it. But I don't want to let that distract from the fact that the rule itself, whatever we call it, is the worst. I think it's the worst rule change of my lifetime, at (gasps) least during my time as a fan. And I'm not someone who is opposed to change Or opposed to rule changes in general. There are many that I would advocate for. And I will mention one of them that I'm quite happy about in just a second. But, you know, I said nothing when they came for my faking a throw to third and then throwing to first. Or having to throw intentional balls versus just uh, putting up four fingers. I don't care about any of that nonsense. It's fine. I don't miss it. I'm not getting bent out of shape about the three batter minimum, which, you know, I didn't love or think it was all that effective, but I don't care. It doesn't offend me on a fundamental level, Mm -hmm. but the zombie runner is, and if anything, my resolve has hardened against it over time, and I will continue to hold out probably false hope that someday I will be freed from it. However, at least this shot came with a chaser that was catered to me personally. Yeah. And- The accompaniment to this new rule is that there is another new rule on the books, and it is, for all intents and purposes, the Shohei Otani rule. Yep. So we did a Stanky draft recently. Some listeners will recall our Eddie Stanky-inspired draft of rule changes that were precipitated by a single player or person. And if we were to do that again, we would have to add this new rule to the list because it is clearly Shohei Otani-inspired. And it means... That now, with the DH becoming universal, the new rule says that if the starting pitcher is also hitting in the lineup, then that player remains the DH, even if the pitcher is pulled from the start. So, if Otani pitches five or six or seven innings, he can remain in the game as the designated hitter for the duration. And that is not just for 2022, but permanently, or at least for the life of this CBA. Yep. And ostensibly, the hope is to promote more two-way players. I don't know who those would be at this point. Yeah, other I'm very than... skeptical of that <laughs> as like a thing. But... Yeah. So this, unlike a lot of our stanky draft rules, this is one that was passed to enable something. Yes. Whereas most of them are like someone does something, exposes a flaw, a loophole, an oversight in the rules, and they say, oh, no, you can't do that. We're going to patch the sport so that you can't do that anymore. This is, no, this thing that you could not do before, you can now do. And Shohei Otani, and I guess, like, who else would this even potentially apply to as it's currently written? I mean, maybe Michael Lorenzen also and the Angels perhaps could benefit Zach from this at some Granky. point. Zach 
That would be fun, but uh, I don't know that it would even make sense for him to do. This is really just an Otani-specific rule, (laughs) and I don't know whether that made it any harder to have this come to pass, like the fact that it is clearly catered to one person and one team, like where other teams like, hey, no, this is just to the Angels' benefit. I don't know, but whatever, it happened. And I'm happy about it. And this is the only possible thing that could have made the reimposition of the zombie runner rule go down, you know, not sweetly, but not quite as sourly as it might have. And I'm kind of happy that I didn't have to choose between these two things. Like if this had been a, a little CBA negotiation with me on one side of the table and they said, hey, we're going to offer you the zombie runner in exchange for the Otani rule. Which one? You can either see Otani play more, he can hit more this season, but you're stuck with the zombie runner, or no Otani, but also no no zombie runner. That would be a, a tough moral dilemma yeah. for me because uh, seeing more Shohei Otani is like at the top of my list of things that I want, and the zombie runner is at the very bottom of the list or the top of the list of things I don't want. So this is really polar opposites, a, a great mix of emotions for me here, but quite happy about this change. I mean, I guess the good news is that if you were to be presented with that particular choice by like, I don't know, an underbridge troll or something, (laughs) you could safely choose getting rid of the zombie runner because you won't get as much Otani hitting potentially, Mm -hmm. but you still get a lot of Otani hitting on the other hand. So like, I'm here to absolve you of any kind of hesitation of that if you are presented with this option, like, you know, I have to answer riddles three or whatever. (laughs) Like you can just move forward in confidence and expect that the highlight of it will be introed with, (laughs) we're gonna get emails, sorry. The actual difference here is is not great. I was just trying to calculate how much more often will Otani hit as a result of this rule. It's not a big difference. No. So I was looking at like his typical plate appearances per game in the games he started at DH versus the games he started as the pitcher last year. And it depends whether you use like his full season difference or second half difference because in the second half he was pitching deeper into games. And so the actual difference in the rate basis was like half as much as it was over the full season. Right. So if you use the full season gap between his rate of plate appearances per game depending on his role and you multiply it by 30 starts, let's say, as a pitcher this season – then you get 44 extra plate appearances yeah. for Otani, which is, you know, it's uh, something. It's, it's like something. It's like eight or nine full games worth of Otani, you know, at the plate, which is yeah. nice. If you use just the second half differential, if you assume that he will continue to go deeper into games as a pitcher, then it would only be like 23 extra plate appearances of Otani over 30 games. And I looked for what the war boost would be based on his like war per plate appearance as a DH last year. If he hit just as well, it would be like 0.4 war or 0.2 war, depending on how you slice it there with the rate. So again, like it's a sliver. It's a not a huge difference, but it is nice that I will never have to face the prospect of a late innings angel game in which Otani is not <laughs> involved, hopefully, or at least a lot less often. I guess right. the only downside is that he probably won't do that thing where he slides over after pitching yeah. to play outfield for an inning or something, which was a lot of fun, lot maybe of fun. risky. I'd love to see him 
do that more often as I think he could, but maybe we will see that less. But still, Moratani, that's not a bad thing. And since I'm giving MLB a hard time over the zombie runner rule, I should note that they have kind of gotten out of their own way when it comes to spotlighting Otani. They have given him a greater share of the spotlight. This is basically the rule that was in place at the All-Star game last year that enabled him to start the game as a pitcher and a DH and then also keep hitting a little while after he was removed as a pitcher. It's not so dissimilar from the way it works in college baseball already where there are more two-way players, but you know they have changed the rules multiple times now to accommodate this unique singular player because I think they recognize you'd have to be nuts not to how much fun he is and that they should take advantage of this perhaps once in a lifetime situation. So I'll give them credit for not being so rigid that they will not change the rules for Otani. If you're going to change the rules in a bad way to have the zombie runner, then at least give us more of something that we do love. Yeah, agreed. I think that, you know, it does soften the blow. It makes the medicine go down smoother. Mm -hmm. I don't think a spoonful of sugar would help the medicine go down. That sounds like you're just getting like a gummy sweet mess that would be terrible. But I think that is the intention here. And I applaud them for that. You you guys can listen to us all of the time instead of just some of the time. I, I point that out. We are available <laughs> for consultations. I know that ours is the aesthetic that you most want to cater to because it is broadly representative. So here we are. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, hopefully that was tolerable for everyone to hear one more Zombie Runner rant. I will try to put that on the back burner. I will continue to talk about Shohei Otani probably too often for some people's taste. (laughs) I will not apologize for that much at least. But one last follow-up here before we get to RJ and the AL Central. We got a question that was spurred by a recent stat blast in episode 1825. Did a stat blast with the assistance of frequent stat blast consultant Ryan Nelson that was about... The actual ghost player, the idea of a player who is on the field but is not touching the ball, is not getting a defensive chance, is not putting the ball in play at the plate. And it turned out that the longest such streak of going without actually having any meaningful impact on the ball itself was Corey Snyder for Cleveland in 1987, who went 100 in-game events, so like defensive events and events when he was at the plate without actually putting in in play or getting a defensive chance in any way. So that was a a span of 17 innings when he was not tested. So we got a follow-up question about the opposite of that from Ted, listener and Patreon supporter Ted Orbach, who said, I love the stat blast about players doing nothing in the field, but he wants to know, What player was involved in the most consecutive fielding events? So the busiest fielder. He says this would obviously exclude pitchers and catchers, plus probably first baseman. But I am really curious, and I can satisfy that curiosity, again, with the help of Ryan, who was able to answer this with the same data set. So, yes, obviously excluding pitchers who were involved in every pitch, and then also excluding First baseman and catchers, although if you are curious, the most consecutive fielding events that a player has been involved in is Pete O'Brien, first baseman for the Texas Rangers, October 4th, 1985. He was playing first base and was involved in 13 consecutive fielding events. 
yeah, 13 straight ground outs. So it was uh, 5 3, 4 3, 5 3, 5 3, 1 3, 2 3, a bunt, 1 3, 5 3, 3 unassisted, 5 3, 1 3, another bunt, 6 3, 6 3, end of game. So he just ran the table there at first base. Wow. First base, yeah, tell him, Wash. It's incredibly hard to play first base, <laughs> at least in that game. And Andy Van Slyke, who was playing first for the Cardinals on June 25th, 1986, he also did 13 all ground out starting in the top of the third. Now, technically, the longest non-first base streak is by a catcher, Christian Vasquez, who caught 11 straight strikeouts. <laughs> so that is not quite in the spirit of the thing. Excluding pitchers, catchers, and first basemen, the record is eight. Eight consecutive fielding events by Brian Hunter, who was playing center field for the Tigers on September 3rd, 1997. So this is one of the Brian Hunters, not the Brian Hunter who was with Atlanta. The other one, starting with the third out in the bottom of the fourth, it went fly ball to Hunter, 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 single line drive hit to Hunter, double line drive hit to Hunter, and fly ball hit to Hunter. And I wonder what was going through his mind at that wow, time. I, yeah. I did a little scan of the newspaper archives. Doesn't seem like anyone recognized that history was happening right in front of their faces. It was not in the game stories the next day. But Brian Hunter, maybe he didn't think, hey, I, this is unprecedented. But he must have thought, this is weird. Stop yeah. hitting the ball to me. Leave me alone. Give me a bit of a breather here. Yeah. There were a couple close ones. August 14th, 1955, Bobby Morgan of the Phillies. Got seven between a doubleheader. He was playing short. It was six plays to end the first game, and then he started the second game. So it was a 4-6-3 double play, six unassisted line out, error on Morgan on a dropped pop-up, then a 2-6 ground out with a bunt and a force at second, then an infield single to short, a 4-6-3 double play, and then he started the next game of the doubleheader with a 6-3 ground out. And then finally... July 23rd, 1964, John Kennedy, Senator's shortstop. He had one that was uh, one play less, but kind of seems like it should count. Bottom of the eighth with the Senators up two to one. Mickey Mantle hit a single to left, stretched it into a hustle double after the replay throw by Kennedy was dropped by Don Blassengame at second. Then Pedro Gonzalez, who pinch ran for Mantle, got thrown out in a fielder's choice on a grounder to short. The next batter hit into a 1-6-3 double play to end the inning. Bottom of the ninth, still 2-1, to one, started with a pop fly to short, then an infield single to short by Cleet Boyer. Then Boyer got caught wandering too far off the bag. The catcher chased him. Eventually, he was tagged out by the first baseman, so that's a 2-6-3 pickoff. And then the game ended on what was scored a line-out shortstop to first base, so maybe he dropped the line drive and then threw to first for the force, but that ended the game. So technically, that's six plays, since we're not counting base running plays, but it's sure. sort of seven. So no one else got more than those guys out of uh, all of the possibilities. Wow. So, you just never know when you're going to see something new at the ballpark. But now you know what would constitute something new when it comes to the ball being hit to someone or not being hit to someone for long stretches of time. We've talked a lot. And, you know, I know you said you looked at newspaper accounts of this. Like we have talked a lot at various points about how sort of aware of various record chases players are in the moment, right? How much mm -hmm. does that impact their performance? Do they get nervous? Do they know what the, what sort of milestones they're approaching? And like for the big ones, I think our our general thought is, yeah, people people know. But like how many in a row would you have to have come in your way before you'd go, really? We're doing right. this again? And like- mm -hmm. I would imagine, and it'll be interesting to see how this changes if we 
really do move away from the shift. It seems like the potential for something like this might increase with the shift if your if your positioning data is actually good. Mm. So I'm I'm a little surprised by the, the you know the relative lack of recency on some of those. But yeah, like would you just sit there being like, am I am I sticky? Like am I magnetic? <laughs> Have I right. is this part of my uh, superhero origin story? Have I been radiated in some way that's important? Has the composition of the ball changed? Like how many would it take before you're like, this is weird? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, a lot of our staff last or someone writes in to say, was this weird? Was this weird? We help you figure out whether it was weird or not. Yeah, and sometimes the answer is, no, it's not weird. And right. then sometimes we're surprised by the lack of weirdness. So we think mm-hmm. that the lack of weirdness is itself weird. So you can see how that can spiral for a while. Right, but that's useful to know now. You got you to gotta publish null results as well as the intriguing findings right. too. So that's uh, also good to have as a baseline. And I will leave you with this thought or this quote from pun patron saint of the podcast, Scott Boris. This is not actually, well, I don't know what to call this, but he was at the Nick Castellanos introductory press conference and he was talking about the left-right balance in the Phillies lineup with Castellanos there. And he said, it's a harmony. Forgive me. It's a Phil harmony. I mean, I have already seen friend of the podcast, Craig Goldstein's objection to this, and I I support it. Phil Harmonic is right there for you. Right. Yeah. I mean. (laughs) Which would describe like a whole bunch of different. We do not forgive him is what it sounds like you're saying. You can call us. Like we are around. I mean, we're busy. I got all these positional power rankings to edit, but I'll make time for you, Scott. He also was asked how he made the case to Dave Dombrowski and John Middleton that they should sign Castellanos, and he said, well, you always go to them and say, nice cake, now here's the frosting. <laughs> Does he, is that always what he says? Is that like his, his only go-to line in that situation? What? Just classic, classic Boris. Look, I'm the wrong person to ask because I'm not much of a frosting person. It's too mm-hmm. sweet for me. I look at it and I'm like, this is the least important part of the cake. But I think even among frosting enthusiasts, that's (laughs) not a thing that gets said very often, at least not universally. The kind of frosting really does matter. Sometimes frosting is good and sometimes it is, you know, like how sometimes frosting can be kind of sandy, right? It's like the, the, you didn't cream it right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think he ended up having a really great winter, but this isn't the reason why. No, probably not. And our listener, Ashley, just wrote to us and pointed out the other day that Carlos Correa did not get the Scott Boris pun treatment, as far as we aware, because of the timing of the offseason. Yeah. Because he hired Boris in January. That was after the annual Boris pun drop that he does at the start of the offseason about all of his clients. And so... I don't know whether it's correlation or causation that Correa did not quite get the deal that he was hoping for when the offseason started, whether that suggests that perhaps Scott Boris's punning is actually worth something meaningful on the market and that one should try to hire him before he does his little stand-up routine in front of the assembled media that breathlessly reports his crimes against language. But just saying, he had this one prominent client who, as far as I know, did not get the full Scott Boris writer's room treatment, and he also settled for a short-term deal. So just pointing that out. What would your what would your career pun have been? Oh, man. I'm going to have to take some time to think about yeah, this. Yeah, we should noodle on it because I don't know. I don't yeah, know what I would. Listeners, feel free to submit something oh, because- boy. 
Carlos Correa could be a free agent again quite soon, right? right? right. So uh, to... later this year, exactly. Boris may need a line. So yeah. we're soliciting suggestions here, and we will relate some of the best ones in a future episode. Yes, yes. All right. Well, that was a incredibly tenuous transition to the AL Central. Carlos Correa plays there now. But there we go. will take a quick break, and we'll be back with R.J. Anderson of CBS Sports to go team by team and talk about the 2022 prospects of the AL Central. are back and it's time to discuss the AL Central and we are joined by our friend and hopefully yours soon to be yours the great RJ Anderson of CBS Sports hello RJ how you doing Ben we're doing okay and I would just say that it's time to discuss the AL Central has historically not always been the most exciting sentence but I would make the case that this division is the most improved from a spectator standpoint this season. I'm not saying it's the strongest or that it will have the best race. Neither of those things is true. But I think relative to last year, there is more that I am excited about in the AL Central than in any other division, I think. Again, just compared to last season, because there was no real race in the AL Central last year. And you've got Carlos Correa and you've got Bobby Witt and you've got all sorts of interesting storylines. Am I nuts or is that possible? I don't know if I would say it's necessarily the most improved. I would have to think about that one. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense. You know, you have a lot of top prospects nearing the show. You have some marquee free agents who join this division. And I do hope that we have a more competitive race and a more entertaining division. Because, frankly, I tend to tune out the AL Central late <laughs> in the year. There's yeah. just not a whole lot going on in that division. Yeah. So I get what you're saying. And I hope it comes true, even if I'm not necessarily buying it right now. I think at least four of the five teams are better than they were last year, right? I mean, with the possible exception of the Guardians, who have done next to nothing, and we can discuss that in a little while. Other than that, I mean, the White Sox were already really good, of course, but perhaps have gotten even better or might just have better health. And then the Twins were one of the most disappointing teams of 2021. They've improved and they have some bounce back coming. The Tigers are an up and coming team that was a winning team after April last year. And the Royals, I don't know if they're going to be good yet, but they also have a lot of young, exciting players and seem to be on the upswing. So no one's taken a step back. No one's window is closing here. It's all sort of either keeping pace or getting better. That's what I'm driving at. Yeah. I won't argue on any of that. (laughs) Okay, so let's go team by team here. And I guess we'll start with the best one, the White Sox. And we sent you a little list of big picture questions here that we can answer for each team. And we don't have to stick strictly to these and they can be discussion starters more than anything. But just to kind of recap where we've been since last year, I figured we could start off with best offseason move or favorite offseason move, which will be challenging when we get to the Guardians. But <laughs> what should we say about the White Sox? It's off-season? not a lot easier with the White Sox, can't it? Yeah, that, that's true. But they didn't have nearly as much that they needed to do. So this is fair. Yeah. 
Yeah, I struggled with them because I don't know that I'm in love with Kendall Graveman. Mm -hmm. Uh, I understand why they did it. And obviously he had a very good season last year, but I'm not sure if I believe in him as, you know, being that true relief ace type just yet. You know, I guess that's probably the top one, right? You know, you can go with Garcia if you believe in him, but I kind of think he's, you know, a a light platoon player who's not going to repeat his offensive performance in all likelihood. And I know they added some other relievers and whatnot, but yeah, I think maybe their best move is not getting rid of any core pieces. You know, they didn't trade Andrew Vaughn or, you know, mm-hmm. any other younger players to acquire a short-term veteran. So maybe that's the angle I want to take on this is just, you know, they didn't give up on Andrew Vaughn prematurely or anyone like that in order to do something they could have accomplished with money. And they also didn't just dump Craig Kimbrell, which, you know, right. depending on your perspective on him and his chances of regaining his old form could prove to be a pretty neat non-move. What do we make of the decision to not bring back Rodon at all? Like, there was no real effort made to bring him back. Yeah, no qualifying offer. Right, exactly. No qualifying offer. There wasn't a, there wasn't even a flirtation, really, to bring yeah. him back. So I think that he has found a good home, and I think we can make the argument, perhaps, that his performance won't necessarily be as it was last year going forward. But what do you make of that decision? Yeah, I struggle with him because... You know, so much of the great unknown in analyzing roster moves and players is the health aspect. Right. I think it's fair to say that he's one who has, you know, questions in that arena. I mean, you know, we're not far removed from him basically missing two full seasons. And when he did pitch during those years, he didn't look like he did last season, right? So I don't know what his medical show, and I would assume the White Sox are more familiar with his conditioning and, you know, some of the underhood stuff than me, but at the same time, like you said, San Francisco's pretty good at this stuff as well. And, you know, they gave him a multi-year deal for a lot of money. So I guess I just struggle, you know, whether that was a smart idea or not. I don't know if the White Sox misread the market when they didn't offer the qualifying offer or if they were kind of doing him a favor and they intended to maybe bring him back on a multi-year deal or what. So that's one that's really, it's hard for me to figure out, you know, which side was right or whether they made the wrong move or, you know, where exactly I fall on that. I love that Leo Garcia is the longest tenured player on this <laughs> roster and probably one of the last players that most neutral parties would think of when they think of the White Sox. And yet he's been there for quite a while now. And I think it was maybe Tony Rusa at some point got offended when someone called him a utility player because he said, well, he's not a utility player. He's a regular player who plays all over the place. And that's kind of true. He does tend to play a lot of the time, although last year that was partly because of injuries ahead of him but you know you can't call him like a Zobris necessarily I mean you'd probably be overrating him if you compared him to some of the best multi-position players but just like last year he was kind of exactly what they needed just like a league average guy who could sub in when they were missing a lot of their top line players and that's good that's good to have and so they signed him for three years that's nice it's just a little added depth there and especially with Nick Madrigal gone sadly for White Sox fans they need him too yeah my term for guys like Garcia is utility starter that way you get the idea that you know they're versatile but also they are regulars so I would say him Chris Taylor you know some of the other guys like that that's how I would define them and uh like i said earlier i think garcia is interesting well i was gonna say utility man so that just goes to show (laughs) i go against my own terminology but yeah i mean he has some value against right handers he's a front foot hitter last season he kind of got lucky i think he had like a dozen soft hits which is more than he had previous five seasons combined if you're going off 
you know, some of these uh, batted ball classifications. So is he going to repeat last season? Probably not. But yeah, he's useful in his own ways. That said, they also brought in Josh Harrison, mm-hmm. who he's kind of a similar profile, right? You know, he's more of a guy who's going to, you know, dunk the ball over the infield rather than you know, slug or anything. So I guess they're, they're clearly missing Nick Magical in some ways because they're trying to, you know, replicate what he brings to the table with Harrison. So it took me exactly one question to kind of move us off track, but I'm going to go back to Ben's outline because I can follow a structure. What would we classify as Chicago's biggest strength and then maybe we can consider biggest weakness after? Probably the lineup, right? Yeah. Um, I think it's a good lineup on paper. You know, it's an, it's an interesting lineup because they're really sacrificing defense for offense. But hey, if it works, it works. And as we see in Philadelphia, that might be the new wave. So you know, I really love Luis Robert as a ball player. I think he's uh, just, you know, a star in the making if he's not already on that level. I'm a believer in Andrew Vaughn. I think we're going to talk about him in a little bit, so I'm going to save my comments for that. But <laughs> if you're not talking about the lineup, I guess the ever strength would be the bullpen. Mm-hmm. You know, you have Hendricks, Kimbrell, if they don't move him after this episode is recorded, <laughs> uh, Graveman, and, you know, you can just keep listing off names. They have some pretty good arms there. So I think those are probably the two areas I would identify as the strengths. Yeah. Even if you're not totally sold on Graveman as an elite late inning reliever, it's just an embarrassment of reliever right. riches on yeah. this team. Like, yeah. even if he's just another guy, it's like Hendricks, Kimbrell, Aaron Bummer, Graveman, Garrett Crochet is in that mix, Ronaldo Lopez, Jose Ruiz. It's just like on and on, even. Even with Kopech slated to start this year, there's just a ton of depth there. So whether you think that Larusa is a good bullpen manager or not, they've kind of Larusa proofed things by just giving him such a wealth of really strong options. So yeah. and you didn't yeah. even mention Jose Ruiz, and he had like yeah, a strikeout Ruiz, yeah. inning. He throws like mm-hmm. 97. He had a three ERA, and it's like yeah. you know when you're not even mentioning guys like that, and you're going five or six arms deep. That's yeah. pretty impressive. And Joe Kelly's on this team right, now, too. Right, I was just about <laughs> to say. <laughs> he's, he's day-to-day yeah. or injured, right? He might be a little late to start the season, yeah. but still. Yeah, it's, it's an impressive group. So credit to them for assembling it. And it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. Like I said, Kimbrell is going to be uh, one of the X factors for me, whether they move him or whether he's able to pitch like he did for the Cubs rather than what he did for the White Sox last season. It's, it's just a really strong group, a deep group, yeah. and... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they manage that. And that's why I felt like the White Sox season was almost underwhelming last year. Even though they won 93 games and they ran away with this division, it just felt like they could have been better. And they were missing some of their top players for extended absences, whether it was Eloy Jimenez or Yasmani Grandal or Robert. I mean, they were all gone for months at a time. And so if you just plug them back into the lineup and you assume improved health, not perfect health, but that should be a big boost. And I'm really excited to see what... All of those guys can do over a full season, particularly Robert, who, as you noted, is awesome. And when he came back last year, it was like he somehow hurt his hip and developed even greater superpowers somehow. (laughs) He was like, you know, still chasing a lot, but making more contact. And he was like one of the very most valuable players in baseball from the day he returned on. So I don't know if he can keep that up. But even if he could sort of split the difference, like he's not going to be super selective ever, probably. But it does seem like he's made some offensive adjustments, like he's not just a a total hacker. Yeah, I fear for us all if he learns a little bit more play discipline because he has just he's just an incredible athlete. I mean, the power, the speed. And, you know, he's so fun out there. Him and uh, Aloy Jimenez's interactions, you know, they just Mm -hmm. I, I saw they were doing a bobblehead this year where 
you know, uh, Robert stole a ball from Jimenez and Jimenez had his arms folded and was just glaring at Robert and, you know, stuff like that. That's just thrilling. I think, I think Aloy Jimenez is a blessing to the entertainment part of the game. My only concern is that he seems like he's a safety hazard out there to himself because yes. he just, yeah. during the pandemic season, I saw him get caught up in the netting twice. And, you know, there's no fans out there. You know, he, it's just absurd to me what he finds himself, the situations he finds himself in out in left field. So hopefully he doesn't run into any walls, doesn't hurt himself this year because that combination of Robert and Jimenez, fun to watch at the plate and also fun to watch in the field for different reasons. And I guess we have to adjust, sort of AL Central adjust weaknesses here, especially for a team like the White Sox, where they, you know, even with improvements that make Ben so excited to watch AL Central ball, are still projected to to win this division pretty handedly. Where do we see the weaknesses on this roster? Where are the places where, you know, White Sox fans might stay up at night worrying? Yeah, I think number one for me is the defense. Like I said yeah. earlier, you know, this is a team that is built to hit. Uh, you have Robert on center. He's a good defender, but Jimenez in left is uh, very much not. And, you know, they're going to play Vaughn probably out in the outfield as well to get him uh, some at-bats. And, you know, it's just not going to be a top 10 defensive unit, in my opinion, although they do have some, you know, good individual defenders. You know, yes, Monte Grandal behind the plate still one of the best catchers in the game. And in addition to the defensive aspect, I would say the back of the rotation might be a little sketchy depending on what you think of Dallas Keuchel and also how you feel about Michael Kopech. He's trying to transition back to the rotation and, you know, we'll see how that goes. But on talent basis alone, he certainly would seem to have a chance of being successful just until he actually does it. And we know what kind of innings restrictions he's working with. You know, there's going to be a question mark over his head. So we're going to ask for a breakout pick for each team, which did not require any extra prep from you because you just picked <laughs> a breakout player for every team mm-hmm. at CBS Sports, and we will link to that. But who is your White Sox candidate to make some strides? Yeah, I teased it earlier. That's what we call in the business foreshadowing, Ben. <laughs> take notes. But uh, Andrew Vaughn, and you know, I don't know, it's kind of cheating to say a guy who was the third pick a few summers ago is a breakout pick, but... I think people slept a little bit on his performance last season. You know, he was uh, below average offensively. He only had like 15 home runs. That said, if you look at some of his ball tracking metrics, uh, it was very comparable to Pete Alonso in terms of the percentage of batted balls that were 95 miles per hour or plus and that went in that 10 to 30 degree sweet spot window. You know, he's also in company with like Jesse Winker and Max Muncie and G-Man Choi, who I think people drastically underrate. He kind of gets overshadowed on the raised lineup. So, you know, for my money, I think Vaughn is still a potential middle of the order hitter. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if he ends up being a big part of this White Sox lineup this year. Do we have a do we have a most important rookie that we can identify on this White Sox team? Because Vaughn has exhausted his eligibility, and yeah, you know, yeah. if you look at this lineup, one thing you might say is that it is established. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. the entire roster is pretty. Yeah, and know, this could entrenched. be a, it. Could be someone who's a holdover who's rookie eligible. It could also be a prospect. You yeah, know, see, maybe providing reinforcements yeah. at some point down the stretch. So I think the one rookie, like the true rookie, who we think is going to get playing time on this team is Gavin Sheets. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came up last year and he did perform well for them, uh, albeit in like fifty something games. So I believe he still has his eligibility. If not, oops. But uh, if not him, <laughs> you know, you can get philosophical of this and say Kopech as a starter because we haven't really seen it before and if not that then maybe you say someone like Cespedes who might make the majors at some point this year obviously you know he's has the bloodlines and he's an interesting prospect but I think uh assuming Sheets does have his eligibility I would go with him 
He doesn't, but we'll allow oh. it because you know <laughs> some of those those September roster days, man. They're getting people left and right when they're when it comes to understanding who is rookie eligible still. So you know what also yeah. did it for me the twenty twenty season where it was like oh, yeah. the guys who spent you know the second month of the season were deemed rookie eligible last year. So you have like a Rosarina, and that has just completely warped my sense of who is a rookie and who is not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Well, we actually talked about Gavin Sheets on our last episode because of his excessive coffee consumption. We're very and, worried about him. Yeah, our fears. Does, it, does for it mix the, it with Red Bull though? I think we he does not. Oh, okay. We talked about that too. Yeah, we did. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, we're worried about his caffeine intake. And uh, Dylan, I'm I'm going to do a swear here, but there's the potential for him to become the designated <laughs> on this roster oh, as well boy. as the designated hitter. But stay safe out there, Gavin. You have uh, better days ahead. So. <laughs> The last item here we have is most interesting story or most interesting question about this team, and maybe we have already hit on it, whatever it is. I guess for me, maybe it's Robert and just seeing whether he can sustain those late season gains, or if not that, maybe it's just like, can the White Sox fire on all cylinders for once because we haven't seen that yet and it just feels like they have the potential to like when i look at the fangrass playoff odds page they're projected for 88 wins i pretty comfortably take the over on that i mean that that is conservative that's kind of the nature of playoff odds and projections and everything but this could be a great team if everything works out and just looking again at the playoff odds page they have the weakest projected strength of schedule of any Mm -hmm. team in the majors so it's not as if they have really stiff competition to face either despite my trying to talk up this division (laughs) so i'm just sort of excited for the white Sox, basically like when the lockout was still going and i did an interview on white Sox radio and i was kind of pandering to the audience but also not entirely when i was like one of the reasons why i really hope that we get a full season this year is that i want to see what the white Sox can do uninterrupted with everyone healthy because i think it could be a ton of fun no i like all of that that was a really good job selling this team especially when you just backtracked on what you said about the division so skillfully done you've gotten good at pandering yeah. but i would say i kind of agree you know this was a team that had i think it was 96 wins by their pythagorean record last year and it would be interesting to see if they can get to 100 real wins this season now are they likely to do that i would say no because of you know, Minnesota and the potential for improvements elsewhere in the division. And also, you know, we have to see if they can be healthy. So maybe my biggest question is, can they stay healthy based on what we saw last year and you know some of the track records of these individuals? Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk twins. I'm going to guess that best offseason move is one that we have covered recently on this podcast, but don't want to put words in your mouth. If it is not the Carlos Correa signing, then speak now. Oh, I was going to go with Joe Smith, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was really just overshadowed by yeah. the Carlos Correa signing. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, that bullpen I mean, depth pretty important. That's one way to put it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's the Correa signing. You know, for me, he was the top free agent available this offseason. And you know, to get him on a deal where they're basically guaranteed one MVP level season. You know, I don't think he's going to opt out if he just has an okay season or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe even just a good season. He's really going to have to have a monster season that want to opt out of this contract. So I think that's cool. I also just think it's cool for the game that, you know, Minnesota of all places went out there and signed one of the most recognizable players in the sport in mm-hmm. his prime. And yeah, it's going to, it's going to be fun to see. I really hope he delivers. 
Yeah, the Buxton extension does actually provide some competition for best or favorite offseason move. Like if you're a Twins fan, you were thrilled to see that. It it doesn't make them better. Obviously, he was already on the team, but just to keep him around. And I imagine that he will be someone that we will be talking about later in this segment as well. So we don't have to dwell on him here. But, But to sign him, there was a lot of question about like, will they keep him? Will they trade him? What would a Byron Buxton extension even look like? Given the strange career that he has had, where whenever he's on the field, he's one of the best players in baseball, but he is rarely on the field. So the fact that they worked that out, I think that's something that you have to be heartened about if you're a Twins fan. If you're sad that, say, Jose Barrios went elsewhere and signed an extension, at least you got to keep Buxton. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, I would rank this probably mm, definitely behind Correa. I don't know where I'd put it relative to Buxton, but like we do probably want to talk about trading for Sonny Gray, given just how bad that rotation was projected to be. Not that it's, you know, projections now are especially sterling, but it was, you know, such a glaring weakness. Their pitching generally is. We don't have to skip ahead to that, but being able to put Gray at the top of that rotation rather than having, you know, I don't know. Like Bailey Ober, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> Dylan Bundy. We'll get to some of these other guys, but I think that it at least merits mention given what they're looking at in terms of their other options. So, yeah, right. and I thought that Gray trade was fascinating because they, you know, traded a high school pitcher who they just took last summer. And, yeah. you know, Chase Petty has a chance to be really good. But if you're looking at this from a probabilistic analysis perspective, you got to make that trade 100 times out of 100. And the fact that, you know, they soon followed it up with some other big deals to bolster their chances in the central, I think it, it really looks good in retrospect. Well, and interesting too, and will be interesting in a couple of years because he is such a divisive prospect, right? And so for them to be able to secure Sonny Gray for a guy who definitely has his champions on the scouting side, but also his detractors is going to be, it's interesting now and will be interesting as a retrospective in a couple of years too. Absolutely. We talked recently about the shocker of the Correa contract and how that came together. And I'll just recommend and link to there is a good chronicle of how that happened at The Athletic on Wednesday from Dan Hayes and Ken Rosenthal. Just kind of the the tick-tock of just the hours leading up to that signing and how quickly it came together just with a text out of the blue from Scott Boris. And it sounds like the twins were almost out of the running for Trevor Story at that point and were talking about, well, do we have to go trade? for Elvis Andrews and then suddenly a text comes in from Boris and before you know it they're zooming with Carlos Correa and signing him and it's like almost a second by second account from the twins side and just to give you a sense of the level of detail in this report I will read you one paragraph and this is about talking I guess uh, late on the night that they signed him after they did a zoom with Correa once the zoom ended Derek Falvey and Thad Levine headed to a conference area to eat a smorgasbord board of pizza had arrived, including a large Maui Wowie, which consists of pesto, jerk chicken, applewood smoked bacon, ham, and pineapple. The group also ordered a medium pepperoni pizza, wings, <laughs> and two salads. Assistant GM Daniel Adler requested a meatball hoagie. <laughs> That's the level of detail. That is reporting. I mean, that yeah. is journalism. If you were wondering what former Effectively Wild guest and Twins assistant GM Daniel Adler 
ordered that <laughs> night before the twin sign cars <laughs> now you know he requested a meatball hoagie and you know every topping that was on the front office pizza that night Wally, who are the two jokers ordering salads though <laughs> no one's believing that you're eating a salad when they're ordering yeah, all maybe that maybe it came with it i don't know I, but clearly they're good negotiators because you know they only got this uh got the pizza and the salad that he also convinced uh, Correa to take this deal so yeah that's a productive night all right well I guess on this roster the strengths and weaknesses are somewhat obvious but we can (laughs) cover them anyway what are they yeah obviously the strength is the rotation uh no you know the strength is strength is the lineup clearly it's going to be potentially a really exciting lineup to watch you have speed and Buxton you have you know, power and Sano, Correa gives you both. You have, you know, some of these ever interesting cases. I mean, gosh, Gary Sanchez probably would have been, you know, our center of attention during this mm-hmm. segment prior to the Correa signing, right? Just, you know, what can the twins get from him? You know, will he go back to being, you know, that monster of old now that he's freed from New York and all the criticism up there? Yeah, it's just a really interesting deep lineup. I think their bullpen has some really interesting pieces too. I think Wes Johnson, the pitching coach, has shown that he can get mileage out of individuals who maybe you wouldn't expect it so i'm kind of interested to see what he does with dylan bundy but you know the weakness obviously is still the rotation uh, mm-hmm. outside of gray there's really not a sure thing you know we're, we're going to talk about joe ryan a little bit but mm-hmm. you know he's probably yeah. their second best starting pitcher right now and that's not really a great spot even though i kind of like him so i think we're all in agreement those are the strengths and weaknesses right yeah, yeah. I, I think so yeah it's a, a decent defensive team too probably i mean even with sanchez and luis arias that's not his strength and he's probably dh'ing a lot anyway but yeah as long as you have correa and buxton on the field up the middle that's a very strong start right like to yeah. uh, either defending or former platinum glove guys and well deserved too so that helps but that doesn't make up for the lack of pitching so this is the one area where i mean maybe of any team of any hole of any weakness there could be potentially some improvement between now and opening day. I mean, Twins fans certainly hope that they will end up with an A starter or Luis Castillo or someone. I mean, they're allowing themselves to dream big now post-Korea, but <laughs> it would be kind of a shame if after making those major moves that they've made, they are not able to just put the finishing touches on because as currently constructed, I don't know that they can really claim to be in the White Sox class with that pitching staff, but it wouldn't take that much to at least get it to the point where yeah it's plausible i could see them giving the white Sox a run for it yeah yeah i think that's all fair and you know i i have to imagine they've been on the phone with the oakland athletics over the last couple of days trying to get a deal done so we'll see are they requesting hoagies while they're (laughs) well i hope they're offering more than salads i wonder how much of the salads got eaten you know, yeah. you you always order salad when you're doing pizza and wings because you're like, we're going to be healthy. And then you're like, oh, I didn't eat much of that, did I? <laughs> right. They put it in the fridge for the next day and they're right. like, ah, oh, no, it's, it's lost. It's, it's lost its greens. Yeah, yeah. it's not and crisp. The trash goes. Yeah, not crisp anymore. There's a metaphor there for Dylan Bundy, but we're not going to make that because <laughs> we hope that Dylan gets back to his 2020 form. Yeah, we do. All right. Who's your breakout pick? Yeah, I went with Trevor Lenark. Um, not sure if he's going to break camp with his team i think he might have to settle for an in-season promotion but when i was doing an analysis on sia suzuki's ball tracking data he popped up as one of the similar players and i have a pretty simple rule of thumb if you seemingly compare well with a individual like suzuki who i think has a chance to be a star then i should probably like you as well so you know he's patient he can hit the ball hard i know he 
didn't necessarily you know hit the scene running last year, but I'm still holding out hope that he can develop into a middle of the order hitter. Is it cheating to pick like Byron Buxton's health or like <laughs> Gary Sanchez's change of scenery as a breakout pick? Because no. like I think mm-hmm. that there are a couple of more established big leaguers on this roster who have the potential to you know, just put together a season we either haven't seen from them yet in terms of its completeness or, you know, benefit from being in a different place with a different group of people. And, you know, that feels a little bit like cheating, I guess. You know, we could go with a prospect or like Kirilov or, you know, Bailey Ober. But mm-hmm. like, what <laughs> What if we really do get like full healthy Buxton for an entire yeah. year? Like that would be, that'd be pretty cool to watch or like see Gary kind of recapture some of the shine that made him so exciting earlier in his career. So I don't know. I feel like there's, there are a couple of big leaguers who might assert themselves in ways that we haven't seen yet or yeah. in a while. This could be the year Max Kepler hits a fly ball. Right. His first fly ball could happen this season. I think yeah. this is, this could be the first time we see a number one and a number two pick in the same draft yeah. actually have big seasons as teammates. It's yeah. just never happened before. I mean, Unless you count, you know, Ben Grieve and Paul Wilson, uh, which no one's counting them. Yeah, I think that's an interesting and enticing proposition because it's never happened before. And that's not something you can always say in baseball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Most important rookie. Yeah, I'm going to go back to Joe Ryan. Who yeah. is prospect eligible still. So uh-huh. See, see, I am batting 500 on this. That's very important. <laughs> Keep track of that, folks, as we go through the rest of this division. You know, if I finish on the right side of 300, I'll be happy. But with Ryan, I just think he's a fascinating pitcher. Uh, I think he's been yeah. fascinating for years because he uses his fastball all the time. I mean, he uses his secondary pitches less often than Switzerland Alexa General. He's just, you know, very much a one-pitch guy. And it's odd enough, you know, that it, I guess I would say it's so odd, but the guy he makes me think of, is someone who replaced him in Tampa Bay, and that was Drew Rasmussen. You know, last mm-hmm. year he moved from the bullpen to the rotation, and he basically just threw his fastball over and over again, and it worked. And, you know, in this new era of pitching, it's hard to think of a, a starter succeeding with one pitch when that one pitch is a fastball, but I'm willing to give it a shot. And if Joe Ryan is as good as he was last season, you know, maybe that Twins rotation is better than we're giving them credit for. Yeah, I love Joe Ryan. I feel like everyone says, oh, I love Joe Ryan when anyone brings up Joe Ryan. It's just everyone is kind of like enamored of his skill set. I love uh, a good deception guy. I know that's not his sole skill, but it seems like he has that going for him. So, yeah, I'm with you there. And I'd also throw in Jose Miranda. Mm -hmm. has not debuted yet and is maybe kind of blocked a bit by the Correa signing. But not only do the Twins, at least I think according to the Fangraphs depth chart, have a player who projects to hit at league average or above at every position in the starting lineup, but they also have Miranda who hit... 343, 397, 563 last year at AAA and raked even more than that at AA. So he just hit a ton. He is 23 years old and he projects to be a well above average major league hitter. So I don't know how much playing time he ends up getting or in what role, but if anyone goes down, if someone gets hurt, they have Miranda to slide in there and it seems like he could just be a good big league caliber hitter right now. Yeah, I was going to go with Ryan. I mean, I I agree. Like the deception there is is so fun, like the way that his approach angle and release point interact to make that fastball play up in a way that you might not expect it to just based on its other characteristics is pretty cool. And if he ends up not being able to sustain big league success because he is throwing that fastball literally 75% of the time, like that will be a story of the twin season in its own way. So we hope that doesn't happen for Minnesota fans' sake. Mm Mm-hmm. 
All right. Is there a most interesting story or question that we have not covered yet? Obviously, whether they will complete the rotation is one thing, whether Byron Buxton will stay healthy and whether Gary Sanchez will rebound. Those are toward the top of the list for me, too. Yeah. And I guess there's the question of will Carlos Correa go one and done with the Twins or whether he will end up staying. So there's a lot. There are a lot of interesting stories about this team. Yeah, I guess it kind of spins off the rotation question. But how many of those AAA starters are going to be involved in the rotation yeah. answer? Because they have, you know, Winder, they have uh, Duran and Strotman. And I think there's one or two others who I'm not even mentioning off the top of my head. So they have some, you know, quality prospects in AAA that might end up helping the rotation and helping them make a real push in the central. Mm -hmm. And they could use some bullpen help too. I mean, Colome left and Hansel Robles was traded and Taylor Rogers maybe will be healthier, but there's uh, not maybe as much depth or or high-end talent there as they would like. So that just goes hand in hand with the rotation issue. So I don't know whether they can convert anyone or use anyone initially in the bullpen just to paper over some of those weaknesses there. But, you know, they're just going to have to hit (laughs) a lot more than, their opponents hit somehow even though they will be facing better pitching than their opponents are pitching often that's why joe smith was the most important signing (laughs) exactly right yeah Mm -hmm. i mean this is i don't know if something a question this obvious can be the most interesting one about a team but i just wonder if you know in in the al central is this enough you know could this be enough either to challenge for the division crown is it enough relative to some of the other teams in the al that are floating around the edge of the playoff picture even the expanded playoff picture um some of which were you know less active than the twins were is this enough to challenge even in a wild card spot and then assuming they make the postseason do we finally get to see them either take on and defeat or just move past by virtue of absence the yankees so that that remains a an interesting question that other interesting questions need to be answered first in order for us to even pose but i hope for twins fans sake it it proves to not be an issue because you know i know what it feels like to have postseason narratives hanging around that you can't get rid of not the mm-hmm. most fun <laughs> yep All right, let us talk Tigers now. So things improved for the Tigers as last season went on. They were 8-19 in April. I believe they were 69-66 and thereafter. So you could say that they already turned the quarter, that things kind of came together. I don't know whether you buy that or not, whether that was premature, but we can start with best offseason move, and there are a bunch to choose from here. Yeah, kind of had to choose between two in particular because I really liked the Eduardo Rodriguez signing. Mm-hmm. Somehow he was underrated despite being a fixture in Boston of all places. I don't yeah. know how High that happens. ERA, low FIP guy last year. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know because it's funny because when he was a prospect, he had Johan Santana comparisons being printed about him and then becomes a mighty fine big league starter and seems like all the hype went away. But I think I have to go with Javier Baez just because mm-hmm. he's so you know, excitable. I mean, gosh, his feel for where he is on the diamond is unmatched in my opinion. And I just have these visions of him, you know, hitting balls to the gap in Comerica and just running for days. And I think, you know, we can talk about the flaws in his game, but I think he's just going to be one of the most exciting additions any team made this winter. And it's like a perfect fit, not only for that ballpark, but also for this pitching staff. I just am, I'm enjoying like improved defense 
for Detroit. Like you have, you know, all of these young pitchers and they threw in front of a very questionable infield defense last year. And now you have Baez and that pairs nicely with trading for Barnhart. It's just, you know, when part of what your equation is, is getting the most out of those guys, giving them more margin for error is probably a good idea. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like you want, you want Baez for the potential explosion in the bat too, but just being able to stabilize a situation that was at times like very, very bad last year seems like a, a strong move on my my end. Mm-hmm. And they also added Andrew Chafin, yeah. which is uh, easy to forget when you're talking about these bigger name signings, but Chafin was great last year. Yeah. So that's something. And Got that mustache. <laughs> yep. All right. Strengths, weaknesses. Yeah. And I'd also say Michael Pineda. I think that was an underrated yep. addition oh, yeah. last weekend. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's had his ups and his downs throughout his career, but you know, he's consistently been uh above average starter when he's been available. So I think that was a smart nifty last minute addition. But in terms of strengths and weaknesses, I'm going the Meg route. I'm going really philosophical and trying to subvert this idea of biggest strength by saying <laughs> it's the top positional prospects. Because, mm-hmm. you know, being able to add Riley Green and Spencer Tor- Torkelson either, you know, out of the gate or early on is a luxury that most teams don't have. And I think that's going to go a long way to transforming this lineup into one that we have to take seriously. So I know that's not the conventional route, but I do think that's probably the biggest strength in my yeah. my eyes right now. Do you think those guys will be up soon? Do you have any oh. way to project or like, do you think they can be kind of core contributors right away? Or will this be a case of, well, it's cool to see them. And once you have those guys on the big league roster, along with Mize and Scooble and Manning, you feel like, okay, these are finally the Tigers of the future. They're here. But will they be good in 2022? Right, right. Uh, I mean, that's a big question, right? Uh, you know, Green's had his issues with strikeouts throughout the minors, so maybe there's an adjustment period for him. Uh, Torkelson, to his credit, hasn't really had those issues, and yeah. he did pretty well in AAA and granted a limited sample. But you know, maybe it is a situation where they're not their full powers, but they're good enough to qualify as upgrades and good enough to be average or better contributors. And that might be enough for Detroit to make a real run at things. Yeah, I think that, you know, you have more sort of variability likely to associate with with Green's profile early on. Torkelson, like, you know, the defense is what it is, but that bat is pretty spectacular and has the ability to carry the profile. I think that we'll see him be pretty good pretty quick. So, All right. What's the weakness? DH. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was I was gonna say the uncertainty with the rotation for me. I know I just mm-hmm. praised Rodriguez and Panada. Um I just have some issues with, you know, Mize and Scooble's health history and also their profiles. Yeah. Uh you know, Mize in particular doesn't really miss bats and yeah, adding bias is going to help a lot, but I just have concern in that regard and I would like to see a larger sample from both before I 100% buy in and being confident in them. And then, you know, if Matt Manning is part of the equation, I mean, gosh, he he just didn't do well last year. And I know his pedigree. I know there's more to his game than he showed. But I don't know. I just I'm, I'm, I'm uneasy about, you know, 60% of the rotation. So that's a concern for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And really, I mean, if you're uneasy about that chunk of the rotation, (laughs) then you have to be uneasy about the Tigers, not just in 2022, but beyond, right? Because this is a team whose strength was considered to be young pitching. For a while there, it was like, hey, they need to get some position player prospects to equalize things, right? And when Mize and Scooble and Manning showed up, it was like, okay, the wave of the future is here. None of those guys 
pitch particularly well. Mize was the best of them or the most effective of them, and even he was kind of a low Babbitt guy who beat his fit by a lot, and maybe that will turn out to be a skill of his, who knows, but he doesn't really have that flame-throwing, bat-missing profile that you would think of with someone who was drafted so high, so... I don't know, like, what's the ceiling of this trio at this point? And that's, I guess, just to skip ahead to, like, biggest question or storyline, that's probably mine because it it really determines not just how this team performs this season, but maybe how good this team can get with this core they're putting together. Yeah, I agree 100%. And, you know, the dirty secret about this Tigers rebuild is that it's really been dependent on a handful of prospects. You know, they don't have Mm -hmm. outstanding depth the way – you know, some of these ever top farm systems do. So it's really about, you know, Mize and Scooble and Manning and Green and Torkelson and now Jackson Job. And, you know, there are some other individuals in that farm. I'm not saying it's just these five, but, you know, their progress and their success is going to go a long way in determining the ceiling of this Tigers team and whether they're going to have to become even more dependent on big free agent signings and perhaps even some trades along the way. I'm curious to see, so there's like the bigger question for these guys of, is the rotation able to take a step forward? And I think that that will have more to do with whether the Tigers are good right away or not. But I'm also curious to see if some of the the complementary pieces that they do have are able to hold on to gains that they displayed last year, like mm-hmm. Candelario and Grossman and what... What's Akil Badu's gonna be like this year? Like, I'm yeah. curious about that guy. So, you know, there's the sort of complimentary, I don't remember what weird analogy Boris used to describe this kind of player, but <laughs> you do need that supporting cast around the star. So even if they step forward with some of those guys, are the complimentary pieces gonna be able to hold on to some of the gains that they displayed last year? Yeah, so they did have some breakout guys last year. Is there a breakout guy you see this year? And I should also just mention like Robbie Grossman, who also maintained some of his power gains and productivity. He was always a a good on-base guy, work-the-pitchers kind of guy, but he hit 23 homers after having kind of an out-of-nowhere power spike in 2020 that I think a lot of people were skeptical about. So they had a bunch of, yeah, as you're saying, sort of complementary players who exceeded expectations, and they could use another. Is there anyone who comes to mind? Yeah, and I would also throw out Eric Haas because he came up and did his best Mike Zanino impression last (laughs) year. So we'll see if that's legitimate or sort of a flash in the pan. But uh, this Tigers team was tough to find a real breakout player just because I try to avoid top prospects when I can. And Mm -hmm. I was debating whether Harold Castro should be my pick. And that's not a place you ever want to find yourself in, kids, if you're listening. (laughs) So, you know, eat your vegetables, do your homework. Don't end up like (laughs) me. But I guess... In the end, I went with Green. What Meg said about his variability and his skill set is 100% true. However, it just felt less cheap than going with Torkelson. Mm-hmm. All right. And I guess, is he your most important rookie also? Or <laughs> Yeah, it has to be, right? Yeah. You can say either or both of those individuals. I mean, I guess there could be some consideration for Manning as well if he retained his rookie eligibility. Otherwise, it has to be Torkelson or, uh, and or Green. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we've discussed some interesting stories and questions already here. I guess Miguel Cabrera has become a question at yeah. this point in his career, but he is also an interesting story, I suppose, right? In that uh, he is on perpetual milestone watch. He's 13 hits away from 3,000. So if you care about round numbers like that, he already has the 500th homer, but he's going to add the other one in April at some point. How many hits he will have after that, 
I do not know because he has not been a strength in this lineup for a while now, but he has been the bridge, I guess. He has spanned the old Tigers, and now all the new Tigers are arriving, and they are perhaps getting to benefit from whatever wisdom he wants to impart, even if he is not a core contributor anymore. But he was still like batting in lineup spots where you would expect like the best hitter on your team to be batting. Like he was cleaning up a lot, as I recall, and and just sort of treated as a middle-of-the-order hitter, even if he is not really producing like one anymore. So I don't know whether this is the year, once those milestone chases are behind him, he gets bumped down a bit if there isn't some sort of offensive resurgence. Yeah, I would assume so. I mean, it's one thing to bat him, you know, clean up in a lineup that has Neomar Mazzara and has no right. real expectations mm-hmm. of competing, and that's another to do it when, you know, you have some shiny new toys and some legitimate middle of the lineup threats and like Javier Baez. So I assume he's going down in the order. Uh, They'll probably have to find a way to do that respectively. You know, they don't want to Albert Pujols him the way the Angels did last year. But yeah, I have to assume that at least his days in the middle of the order are about finished, if not his days on the active roster entirely. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that takes us to the Kansas City Wits, the Kansas (laughs) City Royals. Give us a best offseason move. This is uh, probably also a, a slam dunk category for the Royals, I would think. Yeah, I'm I'm a sucker for the Zachary he signing. Yeah, everyone because, is, I think. Yeah, it's just great. I, I just love those loop around stories, especially for small market teams. And, you know, hopefully he goes out on top in Kansas City. Although I also really like Amir Garrett. I think he's one of the most interesting players in the league in terms of entertainment and personality. And uh, I hope he has a big year for Kansas City as well. Mm-hmm. All right. Strengths, weaknesses? Yeah. For me, the biggest strength is Dayton Moore's ethical senses. This was mine too. (laughs) (laughs) If there's one general manager who I am like 100% sure is not going to manipulate a prospect's service time, and I'm looking directly at Bobby Witt Jr. when I say (laughs) that, it's Dayton Moore. And I wish that we had 29 other Dayton Moores in this specific way. I think he has a really good feel for, you know, what baseball needs to do. It's a very clear vision, and uh, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. As, as for the weaknesses, um, it's Dayton Moore's team building sense, unfortunately. <laughs> <Yeah>. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> unfortunately, you know, I look at this team and I'm just not sure they're going to compete this season. And, you know, they do have some prospects on the way. We'll see how those work out, but it, I just wish they were better than I think they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the self assessment doesn't seem to be there. Strength. It's weird because I do think that they are good at, and like, not that it takes a lot of scouting acumen to be like, did you know that Bobby Wood Jr. is good and like <laughs> might be ready for the opening day roster? Like, that doesn't really take a lot of imagination or doing, but they seem to have that piece of it down. But in terms of the other pieces of the big league roster or like how they stack up to other teams in their own division, like, they don't always have a great sense of like or a keen awareness of where they are in their competitive cycle, but. I don't know. Maybe they'll figure it out. We don't give them guff about it the way we give the Rockies guff. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah, I think part of it is just because of more, though, right? Because he does present this, you know, likable face of the franchise type. Whereas the Rockies, I mean, I don't know that <laughs> the average listener could even name their general manager. To be honest with you, yeah. And so. they also won a World Series and a couple pennants. Yeah. And yeah. Yes, it was in a weird way, although an incredibly fun and entertaining way. But they did do that, which the Rockies have not done. So that's something. 
And yeah, it seems like their self-evaluations are maybe not the best, but they have tried to get better and they have also developed a farm system and some prospects who have arrived and are interesting. And they also have some fun present players, right? Not just the sentimental favorites like Granky returning, but they also have a a bunch of other guys who are kind of exciting. So I, I guess that can take us to... The breakout pick, is there anyone who stands out in your mind? Yeah, I went with Daniel Lynch. I don't think he's mm-hmm. going to break camp with the team, but you know he, he was bad last year. No way around it. He was bad even in AAA, which is kind of concerning. Uh, with that said, you know you look at his innate traits as a pitcher, and he's got this fastball with a lot of vertical break. He's got a gyro slider that I think had a whiff rate north of 40 last year. You know There are just some building blocks there. That if he can put it all together, you see him as a middle of the rotation starter. And maybe if he can't put it all together, if he puts some of it together, you know, maybe he can be a devastating reliever. So that's the guy I went with. But, you know, there are other candidates on this team. Like you said, it's, it's not a team that's completely void of interesting young players or potential breakout options. Yeah. Well, most important rookie, I think we probably have a shoe in here. So Bobby Witt, I mean, 30 homer power, 30 steal speed plays shortstop should be up soon if not immediately what do you think the timeline is how good do you think he could be in his what he's 21 years old now and i also just kind of wonder where he fits or, or how they construct that infield around him because you do have too many players in theory for some positions because you have Nicky Lopez who was a breakout guy last year yeah and then in theory you have Adalberto Mondesi whenever he's healthy and then you have Witt and I just wonder does Witt play third who DHs how do you see that long term like who plays shortstop and who slides over yeah, that's a good question. To be honest, I kind of assume Mondesi won't be in the picture for very much longer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I hate to say it, but you know, between his injuries and his performance, he doesn't seem like a long-term piece anymore, and that's unfortunate because a few years back he looked like a potential star in the making. Witt and Lopez—that's that's really interesting, though. I assume Witt's going to break camp of a team. I mean, do either of you think he's going to the minors to start the season? No. I I mean, it seemed like they were giving serious thought to having him on the opening day roster last year, and he didn't (laughs) do anything to make doubts about his ability to succeed there, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's going to play third base. I don't think it really matters. Wherever you put him, he's probably going to be a pretty good ball player right out of the gate, and you know, he has a chance to have that star, all-star ceiling, and that's exactly what this franchise needed. Uh, So I'm just really excited to get to see him play on a day-to-day basis, but you, know, you mentioned Lopez, and it's funny, you know, for as much as we're talking about this infield, you would think we'd be talking about him because of what he did last season, and instead <laughs> he's the third player reference. We're not even talking about Whit Merrifield and whether he could play second base, you know? mm-hmm. so right. yeah, I don't know. I don't know where exactly they're going to play Whit. I would assume third base because of, you know, the other individuals in place, but yeah, I just, I'm so excited to see him, and you're right that he was like the obvious pick for uh, most important rookie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think long term his his future is as a shortstop. I mean, he's still thought to be able to stick there, but I think we'll see him bounce around the infield as guys need days off or, you know, are injured or what have you. He played second some during 2021 spring training. He was at third during some rehab stuff down in Omaha. So like there's been some versatility baked in there. I know that when he got written up for the top 100, like there the team noted that he had some like 
throwing issues a little bit, but nothing that was so bad that they thought he wouldn't be able to stick it short long term. So I don't know, like we're going to see him up there and it's going to be so exciting because whether they know if they're good or not, like he is good. And whenever they are good next, he is likely to be the the player who we all focus on. So pretty cool. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And as for interesting stories or questions that we haven't discussed already, maybe Sal Perez is up there for me. Just can he sustain that power spike where he was just hitting home runs seemingly daily for a while there? He kind of had the out of nowhere Jorge Soler style 48 homer season. And of course, you can nitpick the defense and the receiving and the framing and Royals fans are probably sick of hearing about that, if not seeing it after all this time. But he was just so good and obviously he's so beloved and has meant so much to the organization and the fan base and being a link to the great Royals teams of the middle of the last decade etc so just seeing him like graduate to superstardom almost at least offensively that was pretty special and fun so I don't know whether that will look like a blip in retrospect or whether he just I mean I know he did something different and maybe he was just fresher after his long injury related layoff that was a pet theory that I had just because he never wanted to take a day off and he tended to break down later in seasons or at least not hit as well but that was a lot of fun to watch him suddenly be like one of the best home run hitters in the league absolutely that deal really goes through 2025 doesn't it wow (laughs) yeah that's a while (laughs) i don't know about you royals i like some of the stuff don't get me wrong but some of the choices are interesting like uh, i don't know i don't know yeah that that was just i mean like we've seen so many teams that made the decision to let their franchise face leave right i mean you know let freddie freeman walk over a sixth year or whatever i mean maybe the royals are like almost too far in the other direction of like let's commit to our guys but it's kind of nice that if if you're a Royals fan, you get to just count on having Sal Perez and you know he's not going to leave over a little thing like that. I mean, you know, and maybe even if you trade a Zach Greinke, maybe he'll come back a, a decade or more later. Yeah. <laughs> well, and one final note on Salvi, like, you know, it'll be interesting to see too, like, does MJ Melendez, who is one of their yeah. other top 100 prospects, does he sort of force a reevaluation there or is he seen as like a, a you know, a graceful transition if Salvi you know, breaks down physically and has to move off of catcher eventually, even though he is under contract. So like there, there are other interesting questions around Perez that don't just relate to him, right? Yeah, that was actually going to be my question. My most interesting question is what are they, when do they call up NJ Melendez and Prado? <laughs> because both of those individuals, you know, they kind of came back from the dead last year. Yeah. And they both had monster seasons in the upper minors. And, you know, you would assume that they'll factor into this lineup sooner than later. So it's going to be probably a new look lineup. You're probably going to have three rookies in their everyday lineup uh, before the summertime. And it's going to be very interesting to see how they massage them in and what exactly that looks like when it's all said and done. So you almost have a little bit of a a Tigers effect going on here where we know the opening day lineup might not actually be their primary lineup uh, once the summer gets going. And I think probably a big question for a lot of Royals fans is, can they develop this young pitching, some of which has already arrived, some of which soon will arrive? Is pitching coach Cal Eldred the guy? Do they have the infrastructure in place to make the most of those pitchers? Because that, as well as Witt and some of the other players we've been talking about, I mean, it's kind of like we were just saying about the Tigers. Like, if those guys don't pan out, then that's going to limit how good this team can get. So that's uh, another big thing to watch throughout the season, I think, even if the Royals are not really in the thick of the race. 
Yeah, and can Ace Lacey get on track? Right. Because he was mm-hmm. horrid for them, and obviously he yeah. could be a big potential part of their future rotation. Mm-hmm. And Nick Prado, I guess, is a, another guy to get kind of mm-hmm. excited about. Potentially could arrive at some point. First baseman hit pretty well in AAA last year. Slug 634. That seems good. So <laughs> that could add some offense at some point this season, too. All right. So that brings us, finally, last and least, <laughs> at least in terms of exciting things to talk about, if not necessarily in the standings, the Cleveland Guardians. So we know one positive, interesting story is new name and new branding and yeah. all of that, and that's long overdue, and we've discussed that, and we're very happy to see that and to be able to just call them the Guardians now. That feels good, but beyond that... This is a big challenge for you here, RJ. Best <laughs> offseason move. Oh, that's not a challenge at all. They signed the most handsome backup catcher in baseball, <laughs> Luke Maley. Yep. Him and I believe Tobias Myers were the only additions to their 40 player <laughs> roster who were uh, already in the Guardians organization. So Oof. that's a rough offseason. And yeah. there's no ifs, hands, or buts about that. There's really not much more you can say. And there's certainly not much more positive you can say about their offseason. They haven't mm-hmm. traded Jose Ramirez yet. No, that's, that's true. Something. They have not traded Ramirez or Bieber for Penny Zamadala yet. So, kind <laughs> <laughs> of take what you can get, I guess. Yeah, yeah. didn't yeah. get anyone, but didn't also send anyone away. So that's something. Yeah. All right, strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, so I would say the strength is the pitching staff, uh, specifically mm-hmm. the rotation. You know, as we just said, Bieber's there and Quantrill is really good. You know, play Sack and Savali and Tristan McKenzie is really interesting even if he isn't necessarily the most reliable at this point in his career weaknesses uh let's say the owners how about the owners uh, yeah yeah would you agree with the owners yeah, yeah. i think so yeah a, they the last a... check they have a payroll that is only better than the orioles and pirates pirates are rebuilding the orioles yeah. according to to roster resource the the projected payrolls at least they are now last in the american league above only the pirates so we'll see how things Oof. shake out with arbitration but Right now, projected for $53 million. How do you let Mike Elias outspend you? (laughs) That's not a great sign. No. Yeah. Yeah. And that's actually, that's going to be one of my interesting stories or, or questions about this team, I guess, is that it was reported, I think, late last year that David Blitzer, the private equity guy who's an investor in a lot of sports teams, he was set to take a 35% stake in the Guardians. And I think he has the option over the next five to six seasons, maybe, of acquiring majority control if he's approved by enough owners. So there is at least on the horizon the prospect of a post-Dolan Guardians, I guess. And you don't know for sure whether anyone will be better, but it would be hard to be worse or invest less in this team than the Dolans have of late. So, yeah. I mean, they, like, what are they weird beneficiaries of? I guess in some ways, like, they're a weird beneficiary of the Rule 5 draft getting canceled, (laughs) right? Because they couldn't add all the guys they would have wanted to protect to the 40-man, so now they don't have to worry about that for another year. (laughs) And, you know, like, they do. It's just so frustrating because there is real acumen on this dev staff to like get the most out of pitchers and to change guys and to help guys develop and just no commitment to making that pair with anything resembling a reasonable big league payroll it's just so frustrating 
Yeah. yeah. And the related weakness, obviously, as a result of that lack of spending is that you're just trying to fudge an outfield again, or at least part of an outfield, right? They uh, did have Miles Straw establish himself with some success last season, and he can be kind of fun. But, you know, you're still going with Bradley Zimmer or Oscar Mercado in a corner, potentially. We might see some Stephen Kwan, and I know you're about to talk about Stephen Kwan, so maybe that Steve helps. Stephen Kwan. Stephen Kwan. How many years running have we been talking about <laughs> the Guardians outfield or the lack is, thereof? And three or four, isn't it? It got, yeah. it, I think that there is a curse. Like We need to engage with the possibility that the decision not <laughs> to extend a qualifying offer to Michael Brantley cursed the outfield and there needs to be you know a commitment of spending in order to undo it it's like my theory that the mariners won't make the postseason until someone else has thrown the most recent perfect game other than felix (laughs) hernandez i don't believe in magic but i am saying that there are things we can't quantify and i think that this is they're cursed yeah, can you call it a curse if if it's a self-inflicted <laughs> curse if you have cursed yourself by just not getting an outfielder? Then I can't believe that you're not familiar with the long tradition in literature of triggering curses by your own hubris. This is true, classic true. curse stuff. Yeah, I mean, curse of the bambino just falls right into there. And there you go, Calvino, for that matter. We're talking about the guardians, right? <laughs> yeah, Calvino. So, all right, I guess you can curse yourself just by not getting an outfielder. You have cursed yourself to having bad outfielders and. Well, all right. Let's uh, let's do breakout pick then before we move on. Yeah, I'm I'm still marveling at that right field platoon of Zimmer and Mercado because <laughs> it's a lot. Neither one of them has a career slugging percentage over 400. That's just remarkable <laughs> to think that you're yeah. running that out. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, breakout pick, uh, Stephen Kwan. You know, I have <sighs> to I have to mention Eric Longenhagen here, Fangraphs mm-hmm. resident prospect expert, because Kwan is one of the most interesting players in the minors and i gotta say i think eric is the only one with the guts to actually rank him like he is he's like 57 57th and that is i'm impressed because i didn't have the guts to do that for sure but you know if you're not familiar with kwan he is a little outfielder i think he's like five nine and he makes a lot of contact he's consistently walked more than he struck out and last season he started showing some power in games at the double a and triple a level whether that's a you know creation of the ballpark and the environment he was hitting in or something you know, I think he's made some swing adjustments, you know, depending on how real and sustainable that is, he could be a very, very interesting player. So I chose him as my breakout because, you know, when I'm talking about an outfielder like this where, you know, they have the on base chops, they have the contact ability, the question is power. My thing is always are they Brett Gardner or are they Sam Fold? And, you know, Brett Gardner could still be playing major league baseball this season, whereas you know, Sam Fold is literally a GM, so it kind of shows you, you know, that's the the spectrum, so to speak, of risk reward and potential outcomes. You know, fifteen mm-hmm. year big league career or early retirement, you become a, an executive or a coach or what have you. So I don't know where he's going to fall, but I really want to give kudos to Eric for you know a bold evaluation, and I kind of hope he's right because I think Juan's a very interesting player. He's also, I assume, the most important rookie, or is there anyone else you want to mention? I think I did have him down as the most important rookie. Uh, mm-hmm. I do have a few others I would name, though. Nolan Jones has been in the upper yeah. minors going on three years now, I think. It was pre-pandemic. He reached double A. And I just keep waiting on him to debut. You know, we used to say, oh, you know, he's <laughs> he'll be Josh Donaldson's replacement. Well, 
Josh Donaldson's on like his third team since, and Nolan Jones is still not taking a big league swing. So kind of want to see what's going on there. They have a lot of infield prospects nearing the majors. I believe Gabriel Arias is the closest to the majors, and he came over in the Mike Clevenger trade of San Diego. He's pretty interesting. Uh, has a good glove, and you know I, I have to imagine he's going to make his big league debut at some point this year, albeit probably later in the summer. So I think one of those two uh, would probably be my other most important rookie, but realistically are any of those three going to make the difference for them probably not this year and probably not at all Mm -hmm. well my breakout pick i don't know if this even qualifies but i'm a big tristan mckenzie believer still i I know he's been good before so maybe he shouldn't even count as a breakout but he was good for parts of last season he started terribly and then he was great for a while and then at the end he kind of fizzled and maybe it was fatigue but if he could be more like he was in his rookie season when he first came up or when he was kind of clicking in the middle of last season I still just think like he's pretty nasty and so I sort of expect him to put that together and you know I don't know whether the fatigue I mean obviously people have been saying oh maybe he can't handle the workload because of his build and the beanpoleness of Tristan McKenzie yeah which is like historic, you know, we've uh, covered that in the past, just like the the BMI of, of Tristan McKenzie. He is an outlier in that respect, and maybe that changes as he gets older, or maybe he just puts it together anyway. But obviously, pitching development has been a strength of this organization, and so I would see him hopefully becoming a, a key cog in that rotation. And, and I guess that rotation, you mentioned it as the strength, and the bullpen, you know, behind Class A, a lot of questions there. A lot of questions about James Karinchak, who just completely collapsed last year, perhaps related to sticky stuff, but maybe not solely that, and went back down to the minors to collect himself. So I'm curious to see whether he can come back. But just seeing, hopefully, healthy Bieber, who made it back at the end of last season, Quantrill was great. McKenzie, if he can be good. Plesak and Savali being healthy, hopefully, like that should be a really strong unit. So I I guess that's the strength and maybe also an interesting storyline about this team, too. Yeah, and I would throw in Nick Sandlin and Anthony Goes, the two ever interesting arms in the bullpen. I think Sandlin got overlooked last year because Cleveland wasn't very interesting late in the season, but he had a really strong introduction to the majors. And obviously, you know, Goza's story is remarkable, and I always root for interesting career arcs, so hopefully mm-hmm. he takes the ball and runs with it. Yeah, and I am also curious about the middle infield and how that shakes out, you know, the, the post-Lindor replacements. I mean, you have Andres Jimenez, you have Ahmed Rosario. It's been hard to know, like, which of those guys is going to play at which up the middle infield position, and also they have some prospects coming along behind them, some promising shortstops, some of whom you mentioned already. So do they get displaced? Like, does either of them really establish themselves? I know Rosario hit very well in the second half last season, but maybe defensively not quite as great. (laughs) So, yeah, that kind of long-term short and second picture, I think, is a big question for me as well. And also So I guess while we're talking about the infield, you can't talk about the Guardians without talking about Jose Ramirez's future and when probably more so than if he gets traded. And so I don't know what you guys think, whether they will learn a lesson from perhaps hanging on to Francisco Lindor 
a little too long if they were not going to extend him. I don't know whether they resolve not to make that same pattern with Ramirez and they say we'll trade him this season, whether he's more of a deadline trade candidate or an offseason trade candidate. I don't know. That's not like a fun storyline <laughs> for Guardians fans who would yeah. rather just see him stay around because he's been one of the very best players in baseball and is still somehow underrated. But you have to at least consider whether he will not finish the season with them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Rosario Jimenez thing is interesting because, you know, roster resource. I don't know if y'all have ever heard of that website. You know, <laughs> very useful. I recommend it highly. But right now they list Rosario as the shortstop and Jimenez as the second baseman. And defensively, that's all messed up, right? You know, Jimenez, his entire value is being a good defensive shortstop. So it'd be weird if they went out there like that. But that seems to be what they intend to do. So I find that odd. And you talked about you know the infield prospects. I should mention because I just you know went on and on about uh, Stephen Kwan that they have Tyler Freeman coming, and he's another one of these like Nick Magical types where he's all about the contact and uh, he doesn't walk, doesn't hit for power, but you know he can put a bat on the ball. So if he comes up at some point late this season, uh, I think he's going to start in Triple A. He's another interesting one to watch, even if I'm not quite sure what his you know total value is going to be heading forward. Mm-hmm. And we should also note, I guess, that Terry Francona is back and hopefully will have better health this season. So maybe that helps the team whether or not it does. It's nice to have him back and hopefully healthy. And you also have to hope, I guess, that this team will not get no hit three times this season or arguably four times, right, depending on Mm. whether you count the seven-inning no-hitter or not. So that was an accomplishment that they would hope not to repeat. So maybe things will be better for them, not that they have actually made any effort to make things better for them. And I know they also lost their pitching coach, Ruben Niebla, right, who left to join the Padres. and. You know, I don't know whether that hurts their pitching development, which, as we've noted, has been such a strength for them or not. But it just occurred to me, Ben, that they mm-hmm. spent one million dollars for every time they were almost no hit last season. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. All right. Well, on Boy. that note, I guess we can leave the AL Central behind. RJ, thank you very much for coming on and sharing your expertise. I know you're not an AL Central specialist or anything, but no. you're able to talk intelligently about every team at any time, which is why you should follow RJ on Twitter at R underscore J underscore Anderson and read him at CBS Sports, where he is writing all the time. He does a bit of everything, really. He does reported features. We had him on last year to talk about his Atlantic League mound move story. He does breakout picks. He does news blogs. He does draft coverage. He somehow became an amateur draft expert. And I'm makes a all the certified draft I have- <laughs> expert. I have my license, Ben. But yes, I am a utility starter. To throw this back to the very beginning of the podcast. Yes, exactly. You're the the Liori Garcia of CBS (laughs) Sports, if not better. So thank you very much, RJ. Always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you all for having me and stay safe, everybody. All right. That will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. Hope you enjoyed this new preview format. We'll probably stick with something like it over the following five divisions, but feel free to send suggestions if you are so inclined. And I should also provide an update that the big headlining Bank-breaking off-season free agent edition for the Cleveland Guardians, Luke Maley, who was mentioned in this segment, he came up limping in a game after we recorded after running from first to third and was helped off the field, not putting much pressure on the injured leg. So there's the Guardians off-season going up in smoke. I'm sorry, Guardians fans. 
On a more positive note, we also had a vintage Zach Greinke story occur. Greinke was starting a game on Wednesday, and before he left the bullpen, a fan approached him, asked for an autograph. Greinke said he'd give him one, but only if he could take the fan's picture. And the fan, Reed from California, agreed to the terms. So Greinke pulled out his phone, snapped a pic, and I will link to it. It was tweeted by Josh Vernier, Reed from California, an interesting-looking man. A bearded man with a very marijuana 420 weed-inspired outfit from head to toe. I can see why Granky wanted to preserve his picture for posterity. Looking forward to a full season of Granky Stories. For now, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon, and we hope you will by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Kevin Reed, Randall Woodford, Henry Clark, Ethan Lutsky, and Sarah Luthi. Thanks to all of you. Our Patreon supporters, of course, get access to our Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons, as well as monthly bonus pods and other perks. Anyone or anyone with a Facebook account can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can all also rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments and suggestions for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance, and we will be back with another division preview next time. I believe it will be the NL West, and it will be up before the end of the week. Talk to you soon. Don't underestimate Midwest American sun Try as you might but you will not outrun the burn Say what you want and do what you will Nothing will cover the fate that's been spilled Don't underestimate Midwest American sun